Uh, let's begin as usual with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to gather in your name and to gather around this book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grasp through Lewis's words, the truth of your holy scripture, truth about who you are and about why that matters so very much in the way that we live. Father, we all come with different things that have been on our hearts and minds today. We pray that you would help us to set those things aside and that you would help us to be attentive to your Holy Spirit and what you might desire for us to learn this evening. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin as usual with our uh, verse, which is from 2 Peter, a great book to read if you've never read the whole thing. And I would invite you to say this together with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So there's a lot of deep truth in there. And as we move along, I wanna welcome anybody who is new this week. Uh, we continue to be blessed by having new folks join us, whether it's on the Zoom or uh, via YouTube or on the podcast. And I just wanna invite you, particularly if you've just joined us during book four, um, to not be overwhelmed, um, trying to catch everything up. Uh, if you wanna approach this class in what we call the on the beach method, that is just fine. That means you just show up when it's convenient. Uh, you pay attention or not. Uh, you can do other things while you're listening. Uh, whatever you would like to do is just fine. We're just glad to have you along. Or you can snorkel, which means on those things that you find interesting, uh, you may wanna pay particular attention and underline in your book and listen to some of the extra links that are out there or maybe read a short essay that I've appended to the email and that is great. Or you can scuba dive where you read the extra books, you watch the movies, you listen to the music, all of those things and you get the full immersion experience uh, in this class. And really any of those methods, I'm just delighted to have you here. I'm also delighted to have you share this with your friends. I hear from so many people each week who have found these podcasts or videos uh, because a friend recommended it to them. And also, if you're new, please do uh, go on the internet and Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email so I can get you added to our email list so you will get all the resources for that. So again, how to read this book. Uh, this book is uh, an in-depth book, shall we say. There are some big ideas, particularly in this book four where we are now. And so I would really encourage you, if you are reading along, to please read out loud and read slowly. There's a lot to think about in these chapters. 
Um, even though we're doing two chapters a week in class right now, I would encourage you to read one chapter at a time and give a break of a couple of days before you tackle the next one. And then the C.S. Lewis Doodle is a great resource on helping to understand some of what is going on uh, in these chapters that may be more complicated. So for tonight's music, uh, we are gonna listen to something if I can get it to play. And if you think you know what it is, uh, please uh, shoot me a little chat. That should sound familiar if you go to St. Philip's because you've heard it before from our choir. Good job, Elizabeth Scott gets it again. Tomorrow shall be my dancing day. Um, this is actually the gardener version. Um, there's a gardener and a rudder version of this that are both glorious. So let me get back here to the PowerPoint. So the reason I picked that song is it is going to resonate with what we are talking about this evening. And for those of you that have heard that, that song is usually sung as a Christmas carol. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is it's very ancient. It's at least medieval and maybe older than that. And it's one of those old hymns that has about 14 verses. Uh, but that's never, it's never sung that way as an anthem. It's usually sung with three or four. And the idea of the song is that the, the narrator, uh, the one who says, tomorrow shall be my dancing day, uh, is Jesus himself. And he talks about coming for his true love. And the whole idea that his true love is us, the church. And it is about all that he does for his true love and how God the Father blesses him and that he invites us, the church, his bride, to this dance with him that will eventually end up with our dancing all together as we are caught up into the life of the Trinity. So Miss M, that should resonate for you as the dance master uh, for so many of us, the beauty of the dance. And we're gonna talk more about that as we get uh, farther along in the class, but hold on to that image. I really do commend you to listen to that uh, anthem. It's a beautiful anthem, and it really ought to be sung for Trinity Sunday rather than at Christmas with all 14 verses 
but I don't think I'm going to find anyone who wants to do that. So uh, just a review of context. We're still in England in wartime. Uh, it is 1943, 1944, um, throughout uh, this book four. Um, the war is still going on. Uh, we are looking toward D-Day. Um, and the first three books uh, we've covered, and they were all based on these BBC broadcasts. And Lewis really thought he was done when he got done with book three. He was deeply immersed in Oxford and being not only a professor and tutor, but one of the administrators for his college. He was overwhelmed with work. He was doing a huge amount of writing and the BBC just kept coming after him and coming after him and coming after him again. So as we said last week, um, Eric Finn, um, who Lewis had great respect for, um, came after Lewis asking for some theological talks and Lewis wrote back tentatively agreeing to explore this. This was after they'd asked him about 10 times. And these are not small topics. The doctrine of the Trinity, creation, incarnation, the two natures, resurrection and ascension. Um, that is big stuff. And so Lewis and Finn visited in person and they really got enthused about doing this. And they came up with a couple of different titles for this book four and ended up with Beyond Personality. And unfortunately for Lewis, um, there were some political pressures going on with other things the BBC needed to do. And they shuffled the schedule at the last minute, which meant that Lewis had to come um, and be at the BBC headquarters at 10.20 PM, which was unbelievably inconvenient a weeknight while he's teaching the next morning, which meant he wouldn't get home until 3 a.m. And I love this quotation from Lewis where he wrote Finn and he says, a pox on your powers, the powers that be at the BBC. A talk at 1020 means catching the midnight train, getting to bed around 3 a.m. If you know the address of any reliable firm of assassins, no-slitters, garroters, and poisoners, I should be grateful to have it. I shall write a book about the BBC, you see if I don't, grrr. Well, you get a glimpse of Lewis's humor there, but Finn very much agreed with Lewis and he was very embarrassed about it after he had begged Lewis to do this. So um, I wanna talk about the implications from the two chapters we looked at last week. Firstly, to prayerfully lean into understanding your faith and the theology behind it not just as good advice, but as life-changing and transformational. And remember, we talked about this great passage from Ephesians, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And part of what Lewis was talking about here is leaning into theology, trying to understand your faith, but because he says, if you think that theology is too hard to think about. Um, 
and you don't want it to mess with your ideas that in fact, the problem is that you probably have wrong ideas and that theology is a good way to get wrong ideas straightened out. And he said, part of understanding theology is realizing Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not giving just good advice. He said, the world would be better if we listened to the good advice from any number of sources, but we are sinners and we don't like listening to advice. And he says, but what Jesus did is so much more than good advice. It is transformation. It is good news that the world has changed in a radical way and things will never be the same again. And I wanna give a hearty book plug, especially to scuba divers, for Bishop N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News. It is about why the gospel is so much more than good advice. I heartily commend it to you. And then second, Lewis said he wants us to understand the difference between bios and zoe, and to ensure that you are nourishing zoe daily, just as you do bios. And some of us glaze over when we see Greek words, but what Lewis is saying here is so important. In the New Testament, the word life refers to two very different things um, that are both uh, Greek words, bios and zoe, both translated as life. And bios means biological life, the life that we have in our bodies um, that keeps us alive. It's the same kind of thing that keeps a dog alive or a grasshopper or any of those kinds of things. That's bios. But Zoe is very different. Zoe is the life of God, the life that proceeds from God. And that when we come into relationship with Jesus, the life that resides in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Zoe life is what Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, when he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And part of the point Lewis makes is that we are very good about nourishing our bios, that we eat three square meals a day. Um, some of us eat snacks and cookies at night. Um, just noticed for those of you in Charleston that insomnia cookies has opened up downtown where you can order fresh baked cookies in the middle of the night, uh, anyone. Uh, we are good about nourishing that, but we often neglect to nourish our spiritual life. And as Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to feed on the word of God so that we nourish that spiritual life, that abundant life that God wants to give us. Thirdly, Lewis says the whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken into the life of God and that we need to cultivate habits to reinforce that reality. So often we get this backwards. We think that Jesus is like our rabbit's foot um, who we brought him into our life and he's around to just give us good luck in the life that we want to live. And that is absolutely antithetical to the New Testament. The New Testament says that we have been redeemed at countless cost, that our life has been crucified with Christ, but nevertheless we live, yet not us, but Christ who lives in us. For the life that we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. So uh, one of the greatest passages in scripture, if you can ever really get your head around this, it will change your life, 
if then you have been raised with Christ, seek, seek is a big word. It's like the seeker in Harry Potter and Quidditch, um, single-minded focus on going after it. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And again, a movie plug um, for those of you who are scuba diving, Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life is a great movie that helps us get a hold of what we were just talking about. And I'm going to see about whether we may be able to arrange a showing of that uh, once we're done with class. And then fourthly, seek God together in deep fellowship with other believers. There's a special sort of presence of God that comes when we are in fellowship with other believers. We have got far too much of the old lone ranger, me and God against the world idea. And we need other believers. We need them. It is part of the way that God is present with us and how we experience him and how we grow in the faith. And this great verse that we hear so often in our liturgy, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And then from Acts 4, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And the idea is that because they were together, it's so easy to miss that little word, because they were together, they were of one heart and soul, and the grace of the Lord surrounded them and drew people to them. And then Hebrews 10, we're going to hear more from Hebrews later. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that brings us to tonight's chapter. And one of the things about tonight's chapter is that it is rich in doctrine. And sometimes that whole idea of doctrine scares people. But I don't want you to be scared. I want you to try to hang in there uh, with me uh, because there are some wonderful things here. So we're into uh, time and beyond time. And Lewis is going to address this whole idea of God's time. In this chapter, I'm going to talk about something which may be helpful to some readers, but which may seem to others merely an unnecessary complication. If you are one of the second sort of readers, then I advise you not to bother about this chapter at all, but to turn to the next. In the, next, in the last chapter, I had to touch on the subject of prayer, and while that's still fresh in your mind and my own, I should like to deal with the difficulty that some people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it 
comes in the words at the same moment. Most of us can imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it in. So what's really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that is of course what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along and there's room for very little in each. That is what time is like. And of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future, just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet, which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. And now the author and character analogy. Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work. Next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there's no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all as the author. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book, and for as long as I pleased, and the hours I spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story, at all. This is not a perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be the truth. God is not hurrying along the time stream of the universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. Infinite attention. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only man or woman in the world. The way in which my illustration breaks down is this. In it, the author gets out of one time series, that of the novel, only by going into another time series, the real one. But God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him, it is, so to speak, still 1920 and already 1960 or 2400, for his life is himself. If you picture time as a straight line, 
along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we can get to B. And we cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God from above or outside or all around contains the whole line and sees it all. The idea is worth trying to grasp because it removes some apparent difficulties in Christianity. Another imperfect example of this, just as an aside, for those of you in Charleston, if you ever went to the Charleston Place Hotel and stood in the top of the grand stairway at Christmas and looked down on the huge model train set, you would see the mountains and the train stations and the villages and the snow up on the top of the mountains and you would see the little trains. And if you were small enough to jump onto those little trains, you would be in that one train car in one place on that tableau moving through it. But God is like you standing up above it, looking down at it all, seeing the whole journey of that train kind of at one time, knowing what's going to happen. So an objection that Lewis wants us to deal with. The Christians said that the eternal God who is everywhere and keeps the whole universe going, once became a human being. Well then, said I, how did the whole universe keep going while he was a baby or while he was asleep? How could he at the same time be God who knows everything and also a man asking his disciples who touched me? You will notice that the sting lay in the time words while he was a baby. How could he at the same time? In other words, I was assuming that Christ's life as God was in time, and that his life as the man Jesus in Palestine was a shorter period taken out of that time, just as my service in the army was a shorter period taken out of my total life. And that is how most of us perhaps tend to think about it. We picture God living through a period when his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period when it was present, then going on to a period when he could look back on it as something in the past. But probably these ideas correspond to nothing in the actual facts. You cannot fit Christ's earthly life in Palestine into any time relations with his life as God beyond all space and time. It is really, I suggest, a timely truth about God that human nature and the human experience of weakness and sleep and ignorance are somehow included in his whole divine life. This human life in God is from our point of view, a particular period in the history of our world from the year AD one till the crucifixion. But God has no history. We therefore imagine it is also a period in the history of God's own existence, but God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For of course, to have a history means that your reality, because it has already slipped away into the past and not yet having another part because it is still in the future. In fact, having nothing but the tiny little present, which is gone before you can speak about it. God forbid we should think God was like that. Even we may hope not to be always rationed in that way. Another difficulty we get if we believe God to be in time is this. Everyone who believes in God at all 
believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I'm going to do so-and-so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here, once again, the difficulty comes from thinking that God is progressing along the timeline like us, the only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. Well, if that were true, if God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. God's endless now. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never supposed that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you're doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. In a sense, he does not know your action until you've done it, but then the moment at which you've done it is already now for him. This idea has helped me a good deal. If it does not help you, leave it alone. It is a Christian idea in the sense that great and wise Christians have held it, and there is nothing in it contrary to Christianity but it is not specifically in the Bible or any of the creeds. You can be a perfectly good Christian without accepting it, or indeed without thinking of the matter at all. And I wanna just say again, if this is not something that helps you, Lewis is very clear, feel free to skip it. But I personally have found it to be very helpful. It also is interesting because Lewis plays with this idea of time in the Chronicles of Narnia, those of you that have read them because there's the time on earth in England uh, that goes at a different rate than the time in Narnia. And then there's the time in Aslan's country, which is like God's endless now, where Aslan can see and be present in all of it at once. It's kind of mind blowing, but it's this whole idea that God exists in so many more dimensions than we do that we are like that flat line or that flat drawing of flat Stanley um, existing in so many uh, fewer dimensions than God does. And his reality is so much bigger than ours. So that brings us to the next question um, about this good infection title. Uh, that's always a, a risky title when you're in the time of a pandemic. Um, he is not talking about COVID-19. He's not talking about the polio epidemic or any of those kinds of things. He's talking about an infection uh, because he likes the way that that resonates as an analogy for what he believes God is doing. So uh, let's jump into that chapter. I begin this chapter by asking you to get a certain picture clear in your minds. Imagine two books lying on a table, one on top of the other. Obviously, the bottom book is keeping the other one up, supporting it. It is because of the underneath book that the top one is resting, say, two inches from the surface of the table instead of touching the table. 
Let us call the underneath book A and the top one B. The position of A is causing the position of B. That is clear. Now let us imagine, it could not really happen of course, but it will do for an illustration. Let us imagine that both books have been in that position forever and ever. A on the table, B on top of A, uh, with A the book supporting the book B. In that case, B's position would always have been resulting from A's position. But all the same, A's position would not have, sorry, I can't read that um, because it's blocked by Zoom, but I'm hoping you can. In other words, the result does not come after the cause. Of course, results usually do. You eat the cucumber first and have the indigestion afterwards. Lewis was not a big salad fan, but it's not so with all causes and results. You will see in a moment why I think this is important. Three and one. I said a few pages back, that was what we talked about in last week's chapter about dimensions, that God is a being which contains three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube contains six squares while remaining one body. But as soon as I begin trying to explain how these persons are connected, I have to use words which makes it sound as if one of them was there before the others. The first person is called the father and the second, the son. We say that the first begets or produces the second. We call it begetting, not making, because what he produces is of the same kind as himself. And that way, the word father is the only word to use because a man begets a son. He creates a statue, he makes a statue, but he doesn't beget a statue. So in that same way, the word father is the only word to use, but unfortunately, it suggests he is there first, just as a human father exists before his son. But that is not so with God. There is no before and after about it. And that is why I've spent some time trying to make clear how one thing can be the source or cause or origin of another without being there before it. The son exists because the father exists, but there never was a time before the father produced the son. Perhaps the best way to think of it is this. I asked you just now to imagine those two books and probably most of you did. That is, you made an active imagination, and as a result, you had a mental picture. Quite obviously, your act of imagining was the cause and the mental picture, the result. But that does not mean that you first did the imagining and then got the picture. The moment you did it, the imagining, the picture was there. Your will was keeping the picture before you all the time. Yet that act of will and the picture began at exactly the same moment and ended at exactly the same moment. If there were a being who had always existed and had always been imagining one thing, his act would always have been producing a mental picture, but the picture would be just as eternal as the act. And this is what it means when we talk about Jesus um, being present at the creation of all things, that he is co-eternal 
with the Father. He's not something that comes later. He's co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial, all of those big theological words. And then Lewis uses the image of streaming forth. In the same way, we think of the Son always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp, or heat from a fire, or thoughts from a mind. A fire, if you imagine a fire that's kindled, as soon as there's a fire, there's heat that comes up from it. When there's no fire, there's no heat. You can't have a fire without the heat, but they're not the same thing. The same thing with a lamp, the light that's coming out of it, or thoughts from a mind. Jesus, the son, is the self-expression of the father in the same way as the heat is part of the fire, but not exactly the same. Jesus is what the father has to say. That is why in John 1, it says, he is the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. It's that great Greek word logos. And there never was a time when God was not saying it. But have you noticed what is happening? All these pictures of light or heat are making it sound as if the Father and the Son were two things instead of two persons. So that after all, the New Testament picture of a father and a son turns out to be much more accurate than anything we try to substitute for it. That is always what happens when you go away from the words of the Bible. It is quite right to go away from them for a moment in order to make some special point clear, but you must always go back. Naturally, God knows how to describe himself much better than we know how to describe him. He knows that father and son is more like the relation between the first and second persons than anything else we can think of. It is a relation of love. Much the most important thing to know is that it, the relationship between the father and the son, the first and second persons of the Trinity is a relation of love. The father delights in his son. The son looks up to his father. Before going on, notice the practical importance of this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love because he was alone. He was the only person that there was. Of course, what these people, people in the culture, mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise, and whatever results they produce are to be treated with great respect. And I would say even more today that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise and whatever results they produce are to be authentically expressed, to speak our truth. That is the mantra of our culture today, but that is not in any way at all what the scriptures mean by God is love. Christians in the statement, God is love, believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. 
that everything else overflows out of that love that is in the center of the universe in the Trinity. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, a single person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving, which they would not have if they were apart as individuals. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it is not a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the father and the son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. This third person is called in technical language, the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. Do not be worried or surprised if you find him rather vaguer or more shadowy in your own mind in the, than the other two. I think there is a reason why that must be so. In the Christian life, you are not usually looking at him. He is always acting through you. And the scriptures tell us, as an aside, that he is always pointing us toward Jesus and to the Father. If you think of the Father as something out there in front of you, and as of the Son as someone standing at your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into uh, another type of person, then you have to think of the third person as something inside you or behind you. Perhaps some people might find it easier to begin with the third person and work backwards. God is love, and that love works through men, especially through all the whole community of Christians. And this is this whole idea that God's love is eternal and co-eternal, and it is going back and forth from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit and overflowing out of them uh, all through this world. That the pulsating life in the center of the universe is this trinity of three people, three in one, one in three, co-eternal, consubstantial. So this love from all eternity, this spirit of love, is a love going on between the Father and the Son. And now what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern to take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness, to the joy for which we were made, the good infection. 
Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, of truth and goodness and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? But how is he to be united to God? How is it possible for us, born of clay, to be taken into the three-personal life? You remember what I said in chapter two about begetting and making. We are not begotten by God. We are only made by him in his image. In our natural state, we are not sons of God, only, so to speak, statues. We have not got Zoe or spiritual life, only bios or biological life, which is presently going to run down and die. Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always has existed and always will exist. Christ is the son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. I want to just repeat some of this because this is so important. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. Just like if you're standing by a river, you have to jump in to get wet. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could if he chose just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of the reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Imagine this great, beautiful fountain of living water at the center of the universe, at the center of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus invites us to come to that that's why he says, come to the water. It's why he talks to the woman at the well about the river of living water, 
that if you drink of that water, you will never be thirsty again. This image is such a beautiful and powerful thing, and it's exactly what the kingdom of God means, that fountain and being drawn into the, the beauty of that living water. So there are several implications out of these uh, two chapters. The first one is to cultivate an understanding that God's time and our time are not the same. And this idea really is all through scripture. Uh, the Psalms talk about a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And then second Peter, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. We must not confine God to our clock, our chronos time. And we must realize that he is so far beyond that, that he's outside of it, but able to participate in it. Secondly, we are to consciously embrace and maintain an eternal kingdom perspective, a daily choice to keep this perspective. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen in this world are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then back to Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is who, your, is who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then thirdly, draw near to the life-giving fountain of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to all these invitations just in the book of Hebrews. If you've never read, he, read Hebrews, please do. It is so rich. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may, may find grace to help in time of need from Hebrews 4 and then from Hebrews 7. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Jesus since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Then from Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that Jesus is and that Jesus is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then from Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled 
look at that, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water from that life-giving fountain of the Trinity. And I love this quotation from the great Anglican Puritan theologian, John Flavel, all that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you for all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul, but the lamb will lead you to fountains of living water. So some words to ponder from some other things that Lewis wrote. Lewis's great book, Paralandra in the Space Trilogy, imagines a world created that has never had the fall. Imagine Earth with Adam and Eve being perfectly obedient. Uh, but this is imagined on Paralandra. And there's talk about this great dance that all of the people on this planet are being drawn into. And Lewis puts it this way, the great dance does not wait to be perfect until the peoples of the low worlds are gathered into it. We speak not of when it will begin. It has begun from before always. There was no time when we did not rejoice before his face as now. The dance which we dance is at the center. And for the dance, all things were made. Blessed be he. All which is not itself the great dance was made in order that he might come down into it. In the fallen world, he prepared for himself a body and was united with the dust and made it glorious forever. This is the end and the final cause of all creating. And the sin whereby it came is called fortunate. And the world where this was enacted is the center of worlds. Blessed be he. And then Lewis talking about the incarnation in letters to Malcolm. In the incarnation, God the Son takes the body and human soul of Jesus. And through that, the whole environment of nature, all the creaturely predicament into his own being. So that he came down from heaven can almost be transposed into heaven drew earth up into it, up into the dance of the kingdom and locality limitations, sleep, sweat, footsore, weariness, frustration, pain, doubt, and death are from before all worlds known by God from within. The pure light walks the earth. The darkness received into the heart of deity is there swallowed up. Where, except an uncreated light, can darkness be drowned? And then back to that great carol, uh, Jesus the narrator singing the song, inviting us to the dance. Tomorrow shall be my dancing day. I would my true love did so chance to see the legend of my play, to call my true love to my dance. Sing, oh my love, oh my love, my love, my love. This have I done for my true love. Then up to heaven I did ascend, where now I dwell in sure substance on the right hand of God, that man may come unto the general dance. Let's close by saying 
this passage together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incarnation where you came to this earth to draw us through your death and sacrifice and resurrection into the great dance around the fountain of everlasting life and abundant life in the Trinity, which is from before all time. Lord, we pray that you would expand our minds and our hearts to grasp even a, an inkling of the truth of this great love that you have for us. Lord, that we would not fall prey to the seductions of this world, but that our hearts would be fixed on you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.